We read today from Matthew 26 and Matthew 27. Then Jesus went with them to a place that is called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Please join with me in prayer. Father, having just um, heard your word, um, there's something about this passage especially, these verses especially, where we, um, when we reflect on them, sense that we are on sacred ground. And so Lord, even now we ask uh, very simply that you would enable us to see Jesus and that as we look upon him, you would make us more and more like him. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So in the Gospel of Matthew, which we have been um, considering together now for many months, some of the very first words that Jesus says are the words, follow me. It's an invitation to potentially future disciples. He is saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I am doing something new. I am making a new community and I am the king and I want you to join me. 
And one of the surprising features of Matthew is as we are reading, if we are listening carefully, we realize that those same words are being spoken to us by Jesus as we listen. He is saying to you and to me, come, follow me. I am making all things new. All that is broken and lost through sin, through death, through your failure, I am renewing and redeeming and I want you to be a part of it. And this invitation is an invitation to life. In a, in a world that sometimes can feel so hopeless, here is a call to hope. Jesus says, come, follow me. And yet there is something about this invitation that is somewhat unsettling because this invitation to follow Jesus is a call to a kind of death. Jesus is very transparent about this. We saw this a few weeks ago. Jesus says that this kingdom I'm establishing for me to accomplish it, I must go to death. I must. And if you want to join me, you have to follow me and die a kind of death yourself. Die a death to self-protection. Die a death to holding on to comfort. Die a death to living for yourself. And if we are thinking carefully, and if we are listening honestly, as we hear those words, we will recognize that there is within us a voice that resists this call. A voice that feels afraid of, of letting go of control. There's a part of us that does not want to let go of comfort. That does not want to let go of living for ourselves. There's a part of us that turns back from the idea of following Jesus to the cross. And it's that, that inner voice, that resistance that we have seen triumph in Judas's life leading to his betrayal. It is that inner voice of resistance to following Jesus that led Peter to his threefold failure in denying Jesus. And as we hear these stories, it might occur to us this question, if this is what happened with Jesus' own disciples, how can we be faithful? If even they failed to follow Jesus and he is now calling us to go with him to the cross, how could we possibly do this when we sense our own weakness as he calls us to this kind of death? So in the last few weeks, as we have said, the, sh the cross shines a light. And, and as we've looked at Peter and Judas and Pilate and seen the failure, it has shown us something about humanity and its weakness. But we have one more Sunday that I'm wanting us to kind of look through the cross at things. And here, instead of looking at failure, we are invited to consider triumph that is beyond our capacity to understand. And I want us then to look, therefore, at Jesus through the cross. Specifically, I want us to consider two different moments in this passion narrative that illuminate us as to how Jesus was triumphant where all others failed. And I want us to begin by actually uh, picking up where we left off last week. If you were with us last week, you'll know that we consider the story of Pilate. And as it concludes, Pilate washes his hands and caves and sentences Jesus to be crucified, though he knows Jesus is innocent. And right after that, what happens next is the soldiers take Jesus, Pilate soldiers take Jesus, and they put a mockery of kingly clothes on him, and he just stands and endures as they mock him, as they beat him, as they spit upon him. 
And after they've had their fun for a little while, they then usher Jesus down a pathway outside the city through the walls to a hill called Golgotha. In fact, Jesus is so weakened by the repeated beatings that they need to draft someone from the side of the road, a man by the name of Simon the Cyrene, to carry the crossbeam alongside of Jesus as they go to Golgotha, and there Jesus is nailed to the crossbeam, and he's lifted up, and he's hung on the cross for all to gawk at and mock him. For in fact, degrading Jesus, degrading anyone, was the very point of crucifixion. I was reading one uh, New Testament scholar who said, executed publicly, situated at a major crossroads, devoid of clothing, left to be eaten by birds and beasts, victims of crucifixion were subject to optimal, unmitigated, vicious ridicule. And that's Jesus hanging naked on the cross, bruised and battered, his face almost beyond recognition for hour after hour. And as he hangs there, something strange begins to take place. Darkness shines. I realize it's a strange way of putting it, but in the same way that as when the sun rises, it, it brings light to all around, and as Jesus is lifted out on the cross, darkness seems to radiate from him so that as the morning progresses, it gets darker and darker until by the time that noon hits, three hours after he was hung on the cross, it is like nighttime. And it signals that something Mysterious, something deeply frightening is taking place in this moment. Something that in Jesus being crucified transcends just the, the physical agony of one hanging on the cross. The people around it don't understand what's going on. Of course they don't. In fact, they don't seem to understand just about anything. When, when Jesus, at 3 p.m., after six hours hanging on the cross, cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, they think he's calling Elijah. But he's not. He is he's singing, praying scripture. He is saying the very first words of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For all of Jesus' life, from his infancy, his greatest delight has been his fellowship, his relationship with the Father. He loves the Father with all of his being. He has seen, known the Father's shining face of favor upon him. Whenever Jesus has cried out to the Father for anything, the Father has answered him with love and kindness, but not in this moment. Because as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he is not just hanging as a crucified Messiah, but he is hanging as our crucified Messiah. He has chosen to so identify with us that he has taken our failures, our sin upon himself so that he might stand in our place and endure the just judgments that we deserved. Paul says, he who knew no sin, that's Jesus, became sin 
for us. Uh, Martin Luther puts it this way. He says that when Jesus hung on the cross, he became the greatest sinner, the greatest thief, murderer, adulterer. He bore all the sins of mankind in his body, not because he committed them, but because he took the sins we committed upon himself. And as he hung as this sin offering, in his human nature, he experienced the full, unmitigated judgment of God. In that moment as he hung, there was an absence. The face of God shining upon him was no longer shining upon him. There was no longer an experience of God's blessing. There was only an absence, an absence of light, an absence of joy, an absence of God's beauty, an absence of all that gave life, life to Jesus. In that very moment, Jesus experienced hell. And there is something both terrible and glorious at the same time of that moment. It is glorious because he did that for us so that the sting of death might be removed from us. So that when we go to death, we don't need to be afraid of God's absence. But for a Christian, as we move to death, we know that God will be there waiting for us, carrying us through death into eternal life. But that was not what happened to Jesus on that day. As theologian Herman Bovink writes, Jesus with his human nature lived through it as no sinful person can. He took the cup into his hand and voluntarily emptied it to the last drop. By the power of love, he laid down life itself and fully conscious and with a firm will entered the valley of the shadow of death that he might taste death for everyone. This is why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was a cry of agony. And yet at the very same time, it is a cry of faith. Notice the words he uses. He says, my God, my God. He still clings to God as his own. In fact, we see that from the very words he's using. He is, he is quoting from scripture. He is clinging to the prayer of Psalm 22, which begins with agony, but doesn't conclude that way. Psalm 22 is striking in that it is so clearly the song meant for Jesus on the cross. It continues beyond those opening words with Dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divide my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. This was written centuries before, but this is the words that Jesus is thinking of. But he's also thinking of the words that follow after this, where there is suddenly this move to praise. All you descendants of Israel, revere the Lord. He has not despised the oppressed, but he's listened to him when he cried for help. Future generations will proclaim his righteousness, for he has done it. As Jesus clings to these words of Psalm 22, he is still holding on to faith and confidence in his Father. 
And so as we read, as, as these moments conclude, he cries out one more time. And it says in verse 50, he cried out again with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. That, that word of yielding is this surrender, is an entrusting. It is saying that the son, as he lays, hangs on the cross, entrusts his very life to the father whom he cannot feel, whose love seems absent. He entrusts himself to him to the very last and remains a faithful son until the end. And in this we see the very triumph of Jesus accomplishing our salvation. But what I want us even to pause and consider for a moment as we think about this moment that transcends our ability to understand is how it is that Jesus was able to remain faithful until the end. Nick alluded to this earlier. Sometimes I think we're just inclined to think, well, of course he was faithful. He's the son of God. But that's to misunderstand that he is also the fact that he is a human being who struggles, who battles, who faces these same temptations that we did. And so we ask, how? How was he able to remain faithful while all others fall, fell away? And to answer that question, I want us to move to the other scene that we were reading before I came up. Something that took place less than 24 hours as they go to Gethsemane. So, so Jesus and his disciples have just had a Passover dinner unlike any other. After Jesus has said that one of them is going to betray him, Judas abruptly leaves. And then shortly thereafter, Jesus gives bread and wine. He says, this is my body. This is my blood given for you. And the disciples do not understand what he's doing. But now the, now the meal is over and they have left the room and they are walking as dusk turns to night down the pathway to, to an olive grove on the edge of the town named Gethsemane. And as Jesus enters the grove and, and you can hear kind of the, the wind blowing through the leaves, he, he invites most of the disciples to just kind of wait in a spot as he goes further on to pray. But he does ask Peter and James and John to come with him. And, and we're told that as he is, is walking with these disciples, it seems like in this moment he is, is hit with the full emotional weight of what is about to take place. Always up until this point, there was always one more thing that needed to be dealt with first. There was preaching that needed to be done, signs that needed to be accomplished. But now that the Passover meal is over, there is now nothing that lies between him and the cross. And it says that at that moment, Jesus began to become sorrowful and anxious. He was, he was filled with grief and anxiety. That combination of words here reminds me of something I read from C.S. Lewis who wrote about this after his wife's death. He said, no one ever told me that grief felt so much like fear. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning. I keep on swallowing. This is how Jesus is in this moment as he is feeling overwhelmed. And in a moment of vulnerability that, that likely surprised these three men that he was with, he says to them, my soul is very sorrowful. I am, I am really, really sad. 
My soul is sorrowful even unto death. That is, I am so overwhelmed, it feels like this sadness is going to bring me down unto death itself. Some of us might know how that feels. Not exactly that, my guess is, but we have sensed that kind of overwhelming numbness being crushed by a sense of hopelessness without any energy to do anything. We feel paralyzed by the nothingness of it all. That is Jesus right now. He is, he is thought through. He is seeing the enormity of what is about to happen and he is flattened by it. And so in this moment of need, he asks for help from his friends. He says, stay and watch with me while I pray. He wants people to keep him company in this moment of need. And so after saying that, he walks a little further, maybe 20, 30 feet still within earshot, and it's like he just kind of collapses onto the ground, his face to the ground, and he cries out this prayer. He says, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The cup he's talking about is the cup of experiencing God's wrath. It's the cup of the cross. And that means this prayer is astounding. Do you remember weeks earlier when, when Jesus was talking with Peter and he explains to the disciples that he's going to the cross and Peter says, no, this must not happen. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are thinking in terms of human beings and not in terms of God's way of thinking. But what is Jesus praying now? He is praying, let Peter be right. May it be that, that what is before me would be taken away from me. Could you please take the agony away from me? Would you take the death away from me? Would you take away this absence from you away from me? Father, I am afraid. You know, I think for some reason, sometimes we have this view of Christian maturity that we believe that the more mature we are, the less, the less we will experience kind of any sort of negative emotions the less we will experience fear, the less we will experience any discontent. And to a degree, that's true. But when we think that Christian maturity is just kind of this complete zen and chill, we are, we are missing something because we see that is not what was true of Jesus. Because Jesus, like us, has a human body. And our bodies, whether our minds want to ignore it or not, our bodies will sense threats. And we know how that feels. We know the heartbeat raising, the stomach feeling queasy, the, the sweat, the, the adrenaline flowing through us, the, the tightened shoulders, all of these things Jesus is feeling because that's what the body is supposed to do when it recognizes a threat. He is feeling overcome by fear and grief. And so he prays, take this from me because that is what his whole body is crying out. And yet at the very same time, he prays this, this, this second part of the prayer, yet not as I will, but you will. He's saying, I don't want what I want, but what you want. Which on one hand seems to make no sense, but if we think about it more deeply, of course it makes sense. He is saying, I trust your desire, Father, more than the desires I am feeling right now. Lord, your will be done. 
And so for about an hour, he is praying variations on that very prayer. And then he gets up to walk around and he returns to his disciples. And he sees them not huddling in prayer, but, but falling down on the ground sleeping. And he kind of motions and, and wakes Peter up. And he says, so could you not watch with me for an hour? Watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. For the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We understand that part of what Jesus is doing right now is warning Peter. Peter has expressed great intentions. He has said, I will go with you even if it is unto death. But Jesus knows and he's warning him, if it's only intentions, you need to recognize there's a gap between the intentions you're feeling and what actually happens when you're faced with temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And, and we know that gap, don't we? That, that gap between the intentions that are real, but our ability to accomplish them. It happens all over the place. I, you know, I want to lose 10 pounds, we might think. I want to get better at exercise. I want to be faithful in Bible reading and prayer. I, I, I want to lose, stop losing my temper at my children. When Jesus calls me to go with him to the cross, I want to follow him no matter what it means. We, we know the reality of our good intentions and how they can fall apart when we come into reality. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we know that that is exactly what Peter is about to experience in just a moment's time when he, after saying he will go with Jesus no matter what, denies Jesus three times. But I don't think Jesus is actually only talking about Peter and the disciples. The context of the story says that Jesus is actually talking about himself as well. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He feels the enormity of the gap between what he knows he is called to do and what he wants to do, and yet what he feels capable of doing. He knows what it is like to be weak in that moment. The difference between Jesus and Peter, between Jesus and us, is not that there is a battle. It's not that there is this feeling of a gap. It's that Jesus knows what to do with his weakness. Watch and pray that you may not enter in temptation. It is here that we are meant to see is the key to how Jesus is able to be victorious where Peter was not. So Jesus returns back in prayer, having woken the disciples up, and once again, he falls down on his face, and, and he prays again. But notice the prayer is slightly different, and I think it's significant. Again, for the second time, we're told, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Do you see the difference? No longer does he ask, take this cup from me. Instead, he is saying, if it truly is the case that this can't be taken, then enable me to do what you call me to do. And I think this helps us to understand what is taking place in this prayer. As Jesus is acknowledging his desires, he is opening himself up to allow God to reshape him. He is wanting God to align his heart so that what he wants becomes one with what God wants. Father, if this is the case, then your will be done. And so he, after praying that for a while, returns to the disciples and they're sleeping again. 
And can you imagine what a gut punch that must have been for Jesus, even though he knew deep down this is what would happen. He is in the moment of greatest need, and he asks his friends for help, and his friends not watching fall asleep, and he is all alone. And so he goes one more time in prayer, praying the very same thing. You sense that he is wanting to use every moment he has remaining to open himself to God and to allow God to align his heart so that he would be ready for what is next. And it is here, I believe, it is here that we see how Jesus was triumphant. It is in this that Jesus is going to be able to, as he is being arrested, not call down many armies of angels that he could call down, but instead allows himself to be taken away. Here is how Jesus is able, as he is being beaten, to just take it when he could have done something so different. Think, in a word, Jesus is able to stop the storms. What could he have done with a word if he had wanted to? This is how Jesus is able to remain silent even as he is being accused with the most ridiculous of accusations. This is how Jesus, as he hangs on the cross, rather than being filled with resentment, is able to pray, Father, forgive them. And this is how Jesus is able to hold on in faith to his father even as it feels like his father is absolutely absent. Not because he has some superhuman willpower. Not because he tried to do battle in strength on his feet, but because he did battle in weakness on his knees. Was he able to be faithful until the end? And so as we see Jesus getting up for the final time, he sees Judas and the army starting to come towards him. And, and there is a resolution in what Jesus says that is striking. Notice after he comes back to the disciples, he says, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. Rise, get up, let's go. He, he is ready. He is resolved. He will be faithful until the end, until he is able to declare it is finished. And I believe if we are paying attention and we are listening, we will see in these verses much that answer our question about how we can be continuing to follow Jesus even as there's so much resistance within us. If we are understanding, if we are seeing these verses rightly, we will come to recognize that there is far less to fear about where Jesus calls us than we thought. Because Jesus has already drunk the cup of God's wrath. Jesus has already experienced the death that we so are terrified by and that means that as we move throughout life, as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, as we face death itself, there will never be a time where God is not with us. There will never be a time where we cry out and God does not hear us and answer us in kindness. And for that, we do not need to fear. And what's more, if we, are, if we are listening and paying attention to what we see here, we are being shown 
how to address that tension within us. We are, I think, inclined at times to feel shame for our doubts, for our fears, for our awareness of our inadequacy. But that is misguided. Jesus himself had this moment of of inner turmoil. But what we are told is the way to deal with this is to watch and to pray. And it is as we do this, as we open ourselves up in our weakness and in our prayer that God aligns our heart and enables us like Jesus to move forward. And there's one more thing about this passage that I think we must recognize. And that is that even on those occasions where you and I find ourselves drowsy and incapable of praying even when we are called to, there is still hope. Because this very same man who so fiercely prayed on the garden as he faced temptation that is beyond our ability to understand is our high priest. And you need to know that that means that Jesus is praying for you with that same level of fierceness day and night. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. He says, Therefore, Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus always lives to intercede for you. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, Jesus is praying passionately for you and he will not rest until you are completely saved. If this morning... You are not one who has yet placed your faith in Jesus. My prayer is that even right now, if you listen, you hear Jesus inviting you, saying, come and follow me. Come and I will lead you through what you fear into life. I have laid down my life for you and I will be praying for you. Come and, and say, your will be done. Come and let go of control and allow me to be the one who brings you into life. Wherever you are at this morning, I want to invite us to spend just a few moments in silence first before we have a written prayer of confession. But instead of doing silence in the middle, I just want to give us a time just to reflect before God, to listen, and, and as we are moved to pray, whether it's confession or asking for help, and then I'll lead us in our corporate confession prints in the bulletin in just about a minute's time. Would you please silently pray with me?